ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy and your host of Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring a new podcast from our very own FP studios called The Negotiators. Foreign Policy's Deputy Editor Jen Williams journeys into the world of high-stakes diplomacy. From the Paris Climate Agreement to interrupting gang violence, some of the world's best diplomats and negotiators share the unlikely stories of how they hashed out some of the most consequential deals in history. In just a moment, we're going to play the first episode in the series. But first, Jen Williams and our senior producer, Laura rossbrow Tellum sat down with FP Playlist to talk about the episode and how the series came to be. Well, thank you for joining FP Playlist and welcome, Jen, for your, your debut on Play... Actually, both of you, Laura and Jen, welcome for your Playlist debut. Thank you. Thank you. Exciting to have. It's always good to have members of the team on on the podcast. Um, and we're here to talk about the negotiators, the new FP series, all the the kind of nitty gritty behind the scenes of of major diplomatic negotiations. Um, and I have to say, I love the series. Um, and I even suggested something like this to Dan once, our executive editor for podcasts, myself. And so maybe Laura, as you've you you kind of worked on the series, um, Jen has just fairly recently joined FP. I mean, how did you go about finding stories for this? Because the first episode is incredible. Like so much that I didn't know about how the Paris Climate Agreement was reached. Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for the kind words on the series. I know that it's an idea that also was circulating before I came onto the project as well. I think it's been marinating for quite a while. And it was really a joint idea between foreign policy and Doha debates. They were thinking about doing something either following just diplomats or something more conflict resolution oriented. And then they ended up deciding on focusing on negotiators and specifically Mm. having a very similar structure as I spy, which, Amy, well, you're very familiar with. So it makes sense also that this kind of idea had been percolating in your head because it's really structured to be a sister show to I spy. Mm. So the Mm -hmm. idea is that you follow one negotiator talking about one important negotiation and how they did it and all the nitty gritties, both 
the personal details that they went through, but also lessons that they learned. And so it gives you this real behind the scenes understanding of how diplomacy and negotiations actually work. And then in terms of answering your question, Amy, about the specific ideas, well, there were many, obviously. Hmm. I think in our initial brainstorming, we ended up coming up with something like 50 different possibilities. (laughs) Yeah, different possibilities of, you know, specific negotiations, regions. We also debated for a long time whether it was going to be like smaller negotiations, whether it was going to be anything from like a divorce proceeding Mm. all the way to right, the Iran nuclear deal or the Paris Climate Agreement. We ended up deciding to go for more macro level stuff to start with. Although who knows, season four, maybe we'll be divorced. I don't know. No, just kidding. Probably not. I mean, when I was listening to it, I was like, wow, this is really like, and I mean this in the very best way. This is like really like nerd catnip. Like this is so like, I can just know so many people that would like drool over this, but, but it's actually, it's, it has, I think, such a large audience because one thing I always love about these kind of stories of negotiations and of diplomacy and these kind of high stakes decisions is that they're people at the end of the day. And like it's a cliche, but like they are just like us, good and bad, warts and all. And that is both sometimes reassuring and terrifying when you realize that like the people who are in the room making the decision, some of them may be tired because their baby was up at night. And like, you know, there's like historic beef between some of them and like someone has a point to make and someone wants to get noticed and all of that. And like just thinking that at the magnitude of like globally, like the Paris Climate Agreement was, it's like a middle school group project, but on just so many steroids. And I think that just that like behind the scenes, really human nature aspect of it, I think speaks to everyone. And I mean, Jen, you've covered foreign affairs in in DC for a long time. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, what's fascinating to me is, you know, coming into this project fairly late into, you know, its development, I was fascinated just hearing the stories myself. And, Mm. you know, not to give too much away uh, on future episodes, but back to your kind of question about, you know, how did we come up with different people and different, you know, who to follow and what negotiations, there was a lot of conversation I just know that went on about, you know, making sure there was a good gender diversity and and balance and things like that, making sure that we're telling different kinds of stories about, Mm. you know, different kinds of negotiations. And yes, there may not be divorce proceedings, but there are different types of negotiations. It's not all giant peace agreements or or climate accords. I won't give it away. You have to subscribe to find out. But, you know, what's really cool to me is that when I was listening to some of these episodes, just the raw tape to kind of get a feel for what we were going to be doing, I was just riveted. Like, even Mm. if I weren't involved in this project, I was like, I just want to keep listening. It was like, you know, listening to like a really good political thriller, like book on tape or something. And that's what's so cool to me about the show is that when I think about negotiations, even though I cover this kind of stuff, Mm. like I just picture because we talk about the negotiating table, right? I just picture people in like a beige walled room sitting around a table for like several hours and then somehow an agreement happens. But like, that's not it at all. I mean, there's some of that, yes, but there's so much back and forth and there's like these high stakes moments of, you know, where it could succeed or fail. It could like, there's like these tipping point moments and there's these disappointments that things just like don't happen, right? There's the reality of the buildup to all this momentum and then what if this all falls apart and we don't succeed? And it was so cool. I was describing to my mom because I call my mom, um, because I'm a good daughter. And, you know, I was telling her all about it. And she's not like a foreign policy, you know, person. Mm. And she was like, this is so interesting. And I was telling my sister, she's like, this is so cool. Like, I would listen to this even if my little sister weren't hosting the show. And like, that's the thing. It's so fascinating. 
we think about negotiations and diplomacy, it's always like the boring, like unsexy version and like the military, like special operations side of, of foreign policy and, and things like that. Always the that's where you get the Hollywood movies. Right. But but that's what's so cool about these stories is that there are those like Hollywood cinematic moments mm. where like it could make or break the deal right now. And someone's knocking at the door and it's 2 a.m. And you're like, oh, you know, if we just change this one sentence, the whole thing will come together or fall apart. It's just fascinating. And so I think, you know, that's really the appeal. You don't have to know anything about any of these agreements. You don't have to know anything about foreign policy or diplomacy or anything to be really riveted by these super compelling stories. It's like, you know, like I spy, it's like spy thrillers, but for diplomacy. But there's just as much action and excitement. Totally. I mean, there was, uh, in, in, I don't want to give too much away of the episode that we're going to hear on the show today, but there was a bomb. There was a, a, a very, it's not even a bomb scare because there was an actual bomb which had to be uh, diffused by the by the security services in Paris. And uh, And there's also a cameo by the Pope at the end who kind of, you know, manages to persuade a, a pretty pivotal country over so it's yeah it does not follow the course that I thought that podcast would there's a lot of kind of characters and people who come in I'm like oh did not expect that <laughs> yeah I mean you know that that's a Hollywood thriller right there the Pope and a bomb threat I mean sold totally yeah yeah yeah, yeah and I have so, to say it was so fun also doing these interviews uh various people on our production team did the interviews I was involved mm-hmm. with quite a lot of the interviews and yeah these people are just fascinating can you can you give us a sense of what we're going to, without giving too much away, what we're going to hear in the rest of the season? Well, there is the Iran nuclear deal. And also for that episode, and this is one reason also I'm really happy that Jen's the host. What's going to be a little bit different about the negotiators versus I Spy is that, especially for the episodes in which a lot's happened since the negotiation happened, mm. there are follow-on segments of kind of asking, okay, well, what's happening now? What should we think about now? So the Iran nuclear deal is a great example because we have Wendy Sherman talking about how it happened. But right. But yeah, and that's actually adapted from foreign policy's first person podcast. We edited it to fit this podcast. and It's quite riveting. But of course, that's 2015. Trump pulled out (laughs) of the agreement in 2018. Now it's in shambles. So what's up now? Right. And so Jen brings us to the present. She talks to this wonderful analyst named Ali Vaez from the International Crisis Group. So around half the episodes are going to have this kind of follow-on element that Jen is going to be hosting and interviewing and will really add so much context to these stories. I'm curious, have you, like, having listened to so much of the raw tape and from these really skilled diplomats and negotiators have you have you take Jen have you taken anything away like are you like that is a great tactic I'm going to use that you know at work or in my personal life not at all um what I've actually (laughs) taken away is that I am not a diplomat even a little bit um I'm like wow these people are really amazing I would never be able to be diplomatic in that scenario um you know there's a lot of of frustration there's a lot of you know having to to compromise and to you know check yourself there's a lot of having to push your own allies just as hard if not harder than you push your you know your your opponents or your Mm. adversaries in the negotiating room yeah I am just it's funny to me back in grad school and trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up I guess I definitely considered you know diplomacy and, mm. and everyone who knew me was, was like Jen are you really are you, 
you're the least diplomatic person. I was like, okay, fair enough. So yeah, I mean, just just getting to hear and and learn about these individuals who are involved in that, you can really tell that like they are in that work for a reason. Mm. And it's not that they're really good at you know not saying what's on their minds. Sometimes that's actually you know they're really good at, at articulating that. But there there's just a a kind of I don't know, personality type, yeah. or just maybe it's experience or whatever it is that just makes these people really, really good at what they do and very kind of understanding of all the different sides. And I think a lot of it is empathy, um, which I would say I do have, but really being able to see the other side from their perspective to understand mm -hmm. what their needs are, what their, you know, what their position is, so that you can come to some sort of agreement. You know, the big takeaway, I think for me, is just that it's really cool to see people actually coming to agreement, like people who disagree, mm -hmm. people who are on like, polar opposite sides of some issue or who have you know lots of reasons why they they shouldn't compromise or they don't want to agree to whatever it is and people still being able to come together in our world today when especially here in the u.s when like everything feels so polarized that people can't even agree on like what they're talking about let alone come to some sort of compromise like the fact that people like very recently in our history have been able to come to like really big serious compromises is pretty promising. It makes me feel kind of good about humanity, which is rare. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really, that's a really good point. It is quite, it is reassuring to be reminded that it is possible, you know, and like agreements and quiet diplomacy never get quite the same sexy headlines as when it all comes crashing down. But it is, it's always heartening to know that it's, it is going on and it's churning away behind the scenes. Exactly. That was Jen Williams and Laura Rossbrow Tellum. And here now is The Negotiators, Inside the Paris Climate Agreement. From Foreign Policy and Doha Debates, welcome to the first episode of The Negotiators, a show about people working to resolve some of the world's toughest conflicts Each week, we'll feature one person, one unsung hero, telling the story of one dramatic negotiation. It could be a peace agreement, or a hostage drama, or a gang mediation. We'll also try to learn some lessons along the way. I'm Jen Williams, one of the deputy editors here at Foreign Policy. I've been following conflicts around the world for a long time, how they get resolved and how they don't. My particular focus is the Middle East, an incredibly dynamic region where, as you know, there's been a fair amount of conflict going on. But on today's show, we're going to hear about the Paris Climate Agreement that was reached in 2015 after a grueling negotiation. Just think for a second about all the heated debates people wage here in the United States about climate change. Now imagine 195 countries, each with its own problems, its own agendas, all these countries trying to figure out together how to mitigate the damage from global warming. One of the people at the center of it all was Tom Rivet Karnak. He served as the senior advisor to Christiana Figueres, who led the United Nations effort on climate change. You've probably never heard of Rivet Karnak, and that's no coincidence. The people we've interviewed for this show often work behind the scenes, developing trust and maintaining confidence. That's the nature of this work, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to make the show. To pull back the curtain and allow listeners to understand what the process entails. All the hard work, the late nights, the creative thinking, the empathy... So, Tom had never worked for the UN before. He starts today's story by describing how he met Christiana Figueres. 
I was running the Carbon Disclosure Project's New York and United States division. The Carbon Disclosure Project is a not-for-profit that encourages corporations to disclose and subsequently manage their climate change-related risk. And I'd actually decided to leave that job. And I'd communicated this to the CEO of our organization, a man called Paul Dickinson. And Paul had said to me that he had a friend who was interested in trying to find a critical role for an important process that was going to unfold over the next few years with no details. And would I be interested? And about three or four days later, I had a phone call from Christiana Figueres. Christiana was very well known to me. I didn't know her personally, but as the head of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, as holding overall responsibility for the international negotiation process, she's kind of the head of the profession of everybody who works on climate change. And she was coming to New York, so she suggested that we meet and that we spend some time talking about what was to come. We met in Lower Manhattan and spent an entire day together. We walked all the way through New York, all the way at lunch, we walked through the parks, we ended up on the Upper West Side by the evening. And during that time, we talked about the road the world still had to travel, this history of failure of international negotiations, what had gone wrong, how this kind of knot of resentment and anger existed in those negotiations and how difficult it was to overcome it. And by the time we got to this northern part of of the Upper West Side, she looked at me and she said, well, it's clear to me you have none of the experience necessary for this job, but I think you'd be great. Let's do it. So I think Christiana was intrigued by my slightly circuitous path. I had wanted to be a Buddhist monk um, for really as long as I can remember. I know it's an unusual thing to aspire to as a child, but I felt growing up that I wasn't in complete control of my mind and it worried me. And so when I finished my undergraduate degree, I went to Southeast Asia, to Burma, and to Rangoon. And I found a meditation retreat center with a meditation teacher there. And I spent some months and time there. And then I ended up ordaining and spending some years there and then some further years in a monastery in Northeast Thailand. Now, when you first go into a monastery, it's kind of awful because we in day-to-day life are accustomed to this flow of interesting things, interesting conversations, interesting sensations or experiences or things to eat, whatever it may be. And we distract ourselves all the time with this sort of stimulation. And then when you go into a monastery, all of that stops and you end up with a lot of isolation, not much happens, and your mind slightly revolts against that and begins to panic and it wants to keep those habits going. But if you stay with it and if you stay calm, then after a while, after some weeks and months, then your mind slows down and begins to appreciate much subtler levels of detail about life. And I still treasure memories of time in the monastery when I could look around unencumbered by busy mental processes and see just how beautiful this planet is and experience it in a way I never had before. And when you have that type of experience, you can really also observe yourself. And you can learn a great deal about how you work and your own mental and emotional processes that become more obvious to you because you're quieter. So I left the monastery because I felt even then that climate was a rapidly unfolding emergency and I wanted to play my part. So this was in the early 2000s, 2002. Uh, I did a traditional apprenticeship and I thought for a while that I would be a woodworker and do woodland crafts and make chairs. And that was my first career. 
But throughout that process, life kind of led on to way. I had a series of serendipitous meetings. And then that led me into life as a consultant in the private sector and eventually on to the career that I've subsequently been very surprised but completely delighted to have. What Christiana said to me when I soon after I arrived was, your job is to make the agreement more ambitious and more likely, and you can't tell anyone you're going to do it. So in that context, my role was to pick up where traditional diplomacy failed and to find alternative ways to actually solve the problem. So in that scenario, when there were moments where particular countries would refuse to step up with their national ambition or they would play a role in the negotiations that was blocking progress from others, my job was to map out how can we help move through that. The way I did that was I looked at individuals and organizations that could encourage leaders to be their best selves and to be their boldest selves at the critical moment. So let me give you an example. One of the challenges that we had in the negotiations, obviously, was Russia. And for the longest time, the Russians would refuse to come forward with a nationally determined commitment. And indeed, they would also be quite obstructionist in the negotiations themselves to try to reach an agreement. Now, how, as a small UN agency that has no control over sovereign governments, try to exert some influence over sovereign governments? And the way that we looked at encouraging the Russian state to show up with its best self and its best ability to meet the future was we mapped it out and we actually identified that one of the individuals who could probably help with that was Patriarch Bartholomew, the Patriarch of Constantinople. Now, Patriarch Bartholomew is the head of the Coptic Christians and he's based in Istanbul. Um, Very powerful religious group, most powerful uh, Christian group in Russia happens to be big into climate change. So we found our way to him and we went to see him. And we said, look, we know that you have big followings in Russia. And we also know that you're big into climate change. How do you feel about trying to bring those two things together? And actually, once the dots were joined in his mind, he took it upon himself to speak to the Kremlin. I believe he made three trips to Moscow and met personally with very senior figures or even with the head of state and encourage them to step forward. So that's just one example. We did hundreds of these, both public and private, to encourage these leaders to actually be their best selves and show up in Paris. So for years, the climate negotiations have been beset by this issue of fairness. This is known in negotiating language as common but differentiated responsibility, which comes out of the 1992 Rio Protocol. And the idea is there, everyone has responsibility to deal with this issue, but some have more responsibility than others. Now, it is a fact that certain countries have created this problem. Countries like my own, the United Kingdom, as well as the US, Europe, countries that industrialized first. And if you look historically, have been responsible for the vast majority of the emissions in the atmosphere. So in 1992, those developed countries said, we'll go first. We'll take some serious action to reduce emissions. And you do what you can, developing countries. But what happened was that they didn't do very much, or they certainly didn't do enough. And over the years, that concept began to change. So what the developed countries would then start saying to developing countries, and this was the issue in the run-up to Paris, was they would say, look, this has changed. 
No longer are we creating the majority of the emissions. We now see in the rise of China, the rise of India, South Africa, Brazil, all these other countries. We can't solve this problem on our own. This now needs to be all of us. And the developing countries would say to developed countries, you said you'd sort this out. You said in 1992 that you'd sort this out and you've not done anything. So go away and do something serious about this and come back. And then maybe we'll talk about doing something together. And the interesting thing about that is both of those positions were right intellectually. And those two sides would butt heads for years through the climate negotiations in multiple different forms. Now, the year before Paris, we were in Lima, Peru, and we were negotiating and we were having a very difficult time because we knew that that negotiation was critical to lay the groundwork upon which the Paris Agreement was going to rest. And unless we could find a resolution to this concept of common but differentiated responsibility, we were never going to make our way through. And it was the 11th hour, it was the night before the final text had to be signed off. And there was a soft knock at Christiana's office door at about midnight. And it was Minister Shear. And Minister Xia is the, Xia Jinhua is the longtime Chinese negotiator. He's back in position now as the counterpoint to John Kerry. And he always would turn up at these last minutes and solve these difficult problems. So when he came in, Christiana said, I've been waiting for you, Minister Xia. And so he came in and he said to us, if you want to solve this problem, you need to use the language that we negotiated for the US-China agreement. And it's here in this page and here's how you find it. And off he went. So we immediately, of course, pulled out the US-China agreement, found that specific passage, inserted it into the draft text, and then had this kind of comical experience of running with that draft text in printed form, because we couldn't send it to anyone, back and forth across the negotiation hall for the next several hours, checking it with the EU delegation, checking it with a group of 77 negotiating countries, making little changes here and there. That was the breakthrough that finally got us through this concept of common but differentiated responsibility to a new way of seeing a spirit of togetherness in dealing with this issue. The passage that was relevant is simply that all countries have a responsibility to take action in line with the science in their national interest. So it's kind of simple at the end of the day. It flips from being a nasty thing that everyone's trying to get rid of climate action, which everyone's like, no, I don't want to do it. You do it. And we got in, we got stuck in that for a long time to just do what you can bring what you can bring your best efforts. If you're a forest country, commit to keeping your forests. If you are a country with lots of hydro, commit to expanding hydro, do the bit that's relevant for you. And of course, the big risk for us in this process was if we go to that kind of language, how many national commitments are we actually going to get? Will we just end up with a handful because we have no authority to actually get them to do it? But this was the big lesson that I took, and I think many of us took. Once you flip to seeing instead of the lack and the risk and the downside, to seeing what's in it for all of us, to seeing what's possible, to seeing this sense of a kind of determined optimism of a future that can be better, actually what you do is you build a wave of momentum that ultimately crashes over you and delivers an outcome that is better than you could have done if you'd remained all controlling and down in the weeds and trying to control something that can't be controlled. So by the time we arrived in Paris, a lot had been done and a lot remained to do. 
there were still more than 100 issues under negotiation in different negotiating groups that we knew we would have to land of varying degrees of importance. Success was far from guaranteed, even at the moment we turned up in Paris. You're listening to The Negotiators, a production of Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Negotiators. I'm Jen Williams. So, it's November 2015, and Tom Rivet-Karnak is finally headed to Paris for the critical talks. The conference is called COP21. COP stands for Conference of Parties, as in the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And 21, because it was the 21st annual meeting, where almost all of the countries in the world discuss how to cooperate on climate change. Okay, Tom picks it up from here. 195 countries trying to reach agreement on any amount of text. The complexity that exists in that process is legion in any situation. So even though we had broad agreement that everybody wanted to do this, there was a range of issues. Like, you know, one critical one was the islands couldn't accept anything that had a commitment to more than 1.5 degrees of warming because that was a death sentence to them. That meant that their islands were going to go underwater. And they're like, we cannot sign an agreement that is a death sentence. But lots of other countries were saying at that time, even two degrees feels impossible. How on earth can we now sign up to a 1.5 degree agreement? Tony de Brum was at the time the foreign minister for the Marshall Islands, who was a veteran. And he understood that there would come a moment in the Paris talks where an ambitious outcome would be under threat and where it was possible that it would slip away from us, because that's what often happens. Um, There are countries that want to water this down, and it's very easy to put a spanner in the works of a process that ultimately needs to be unanimous and to start drawing people off, casting doubt, creating division. And this all happened around the middle of the Paris negotiations in the middle weekend. And Tony then put into action the plan that he had been putting in place for some time before that. And that was the creation of what became known as the High Ambition Coalition. This was a coordination of vulnerable countries, small countries, initially like the small islands, like low-lying countries, that came together and said, we will form a negotiating group and we will hold each other's backs. We will protect each other and we will ensure that together we will create enough momentum and enough energy that will actually take these negotiations through and refuse to be drawn back by these forces that are trying to slow us. And they executed that with such brilliance that they ended up with the United States joining, with India joining, with Brazil joining. And they've delivered it with incredible theatre. They locked arms countries that were vulnerable, countries that were wealthy, countries that caused the problem, countries that had done nothing to cause the problem. They locked arms and walked through the negotiating halls together, all of these negotiators that had been on opposite sides of arguments for years, and came into the negotiation hall to thunderous applause. They created this momentum, they protected each other, and they held together at a moment when it could have fallen apart. In the end, that was resolved very skillfully in the negotiations by saying, that we would aim for temperature rise of well under two degrees with best efforts to 1.5. That was the textual solution to that process. Now, I should add, all of this happened 
the day after Christiana and I were in her office and the head of security came in to her office and said, I have to tell you that we have found an explosive device and we found it in the nearby train station. Don't forget, this is two weeks after the Bataclan attacks when so many people were killed in Paris in 2015. And he said, we found the explosive device. The dogs found it. It was in a bin in the nearby train station. This is the train station that all the negotiators were using to come in and out of the negotiation hall. We've destroyed it. I need to know if you want the conference to continue or not. So we had trust in the security forces. It was Christiana's decision. I was party, you know, witness to it. But actually, I think about that decision quite a lot because that was a really consequential moment, right? Where if we had fallen back from that and not gone through, then the chances of us reaching back, all of the things I've described about the specialness of that moment, the individuals, the determination, it's very difficult to recreate that, actually. We weren't sure that we'd get back to that moment and then we'd push through and we'd subsequently reach the Paris Agreement. We didn't want to be put off track by that. But we stopped using the ministerial car. We started going through the train station, same as everybody else. We didn't feel it was fair for us to avoid that risk. I didn't tell my wife, but thankfully, you know, we relied on the security forces and it all turned out well. The night before the agreement was due to be signed, there were some final textual changes that were being edited and put into the document. And there was one particular clause, and it was to do with the provision of climate finance. And the text as it read was that developed countries should provide support of climate finance for developing countries. And there was a few comments on that. And the editing teams, I'm not sure how it happened in the end, took the feedback to mean that that word should be changed from should to shall. Now, shall has a very different meaning in an international agreement than should. Should is, it would be great if they did it, and they should do it. Shall is a legal requirement and necessitates, for example, in the US, Senate approval. And within 20 minutes, John Kerry was at the door, incandescent with rage about the fact that actually this now contained a clause that would make this agreement impossible to sign up to. And the entirety of that day was spent going around different negotiating groups. And Christiana did this and she went in front of them and she said, I take personal responsibility for this. This was my team. This is what happened. It was a change, you know, because of course, developing countries wanted this. And this was a moment where they could double down and say, no, it says shall. That's what we want. We want this. That would split the, that would split it. And we would go back to where we were before with developed on one side and developing on the other. Christiana went there. She put her hands up. She said, this is my team. This is my fault. It's my error. It is a textual change. I want you to believe that there is nothing. There's no malintent here. You can dig in if you want, but we will lose the agreement if you do. And nobody stood in the way. On the day of the adoption of the agreement, it was delayed, as it always is. And there were a few countries that decided that they were going to hold out. Um, and principal amongst those was Nicaragua. And Nicaragua decided that they had a few problems that they wanted to try and delay the signing. And it ended up delaying things by a very long time. So we were all in the negotiation hall. I was in the front row. And everything started to look as though it was going sideways. It was Nicaragua and a couple of other countries that were holding out and refusing to go along with what ultimately had to be a unanimous agreement. Um, I believe the Pope put in a call to Nicaragua, which encouraged them that actually 
this was a moment where they wanted to put the future of humanity ahead of national interest. Now, the Deputy Executive Secretary had to go through and read textual changes that were put into the agreement that were different from the previous draft, including the should and the shall. And even though we had actually been round and spoken to all the different negotiating groups and explained to them what was going on, it was still a vulnerable moment. So there was about eight or nine of them. And he did it brilliantly. He put his head down saying, there's a few changes. We missed a comma. There's this issue here. We're going to have to change the shall to the should. There's another comma missing here. Hand it over to Laurent Fabius, who was the president of the COP. And he said, seeing no objection, the Paris Agreement is adopted. Gaveled it through and then all hell broke loose. The uh, climate negotiators aren't necessarily known to exuberant displays of emotion, but it was an amazing moment. I wasn't necessarily expecting anything like that to happen, but the entire place erupted. Al Gore was laughing and crying. People really felt like this was really something. This was really the moment when this had happened. And after the adoption, um, I still remember President Hollande uh, gave a speech. And um, I was always kind of impressed with Hollande throughout this process. And he said this phrase, that this was la révolution plus belle et plus pacifique, the revolution most beautiful and most peaceful, which I thought was this remarkable moment that he captured it in its essence like that. Um, and it was great. We then, we stayed for hours as all the country spoke, and then we all went to a party in town. And when we came in, uh, this was an enormous dance floor with a band playing and everybody roared when they saw Christiana and carried her off across the top of the crowd with negotiators and ministers and all sorts of people in there. It was re everybody really came together and felt like this was the moment when we'd really done what was required of us. I feel like having been a Buddhist monk has changed all parts of my life, actually. I feel like it's changed all my relationships. I feel like it's changed so many things. And, and it's difficult to kind of pin down exactly in what way. But I think I would describe it like this. When you are quiet in the woods like that for a long period of time, and your own mental processes and your own emotional processes have become more evident to you, you find this tiny gap between things happening and you reacting. To most of us, most of the time, it feels like our reaction is fundamentally connected to what happens around us. Someone shouts at us and we feel frustrated. Someone does something and we immediately have a reaction, good or bad, and we feel like we have very limited control over how we react. One of the things I observed in myself, not that anyone told me, but I observed, was that something happens and then we ourselves have a sensation in our bodies and then react to that sensation. And that in that reaction, there's a choice. We don't have to react like that. We can choose to remain calm and equanimous and experience the situation without going down a route of craving more of it or trying to get rid of it. I now live a life where I have children, I live a busy life, all these other things. I'm not saying that I have complete access to that state or to that insight all times. But at the most critical moments of my life, that's kind of been a superpower for me. Because what it's meant is that at these moments of reaction and chaos, I've been able to see what's happening, understand it, but then chart my own course through it. And that's been enormously helpful in all elements of my life, particularly in these years of negotiating the Paris Agreement.
Tom Rivet Karnak was one of the main negotiators of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. He and his former boss, Christiana Figueres, have their own podcast called Outrage and Optimism. They also wrote a book together called The Future We Choose with tips on how to save the planet. It's worth pointing out that for all of the celebration after the accord, most countries haven't been able to meet their Paris targets. In fact, global CO2 emissions have increased almost every year since 2015. So what happened? Well, one shortcoming of the Paris Climate Agreement was the lack of an enforcement mechanism. It's mandated by the UN, but countries can basically do what they want. Another difficulty is what Tom describes as the ratchet mechanism. Basically, the idea that countries are supposed to come up with new climate targets every five years. We always knew that the first round of commitments weren't in line with the long-term goal. But what we thought was that every five years, technology will improve, politics will improve, the understanding of the severity of the science will improve, and we'll keep coming back to the table and we'll keep strengthening our commitments and eventually we'll bring those two lines into balance. That table Tom is talking about, this year it's in Glasgow, where countries will meet in late October for another UN climate change conference, the COP26 countries need to come forward with their next nationally determined commitments. Right now, we're heading for nearly four degrees of warming. The test of Glasgow will be how far down we can pull that trajectory towards the long-term goal out of Paris. Getting it to 1.5 might be too ambitious. Getting it to under two degrees, in my view, would be a success. Okay, so now we all know what to expect from the conference in Glasgow and just how complicated these negotiations can be. The Negotiators is a production of Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. A bunch of people helped produce today's show, including Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, Simone Perez, Claudia Tady, Jafit Weeks, Jigar Mehta, Amjad Atala, and Dan Efron. Laura Rossbrow-Tellum is the show's senior producer. Thanks to Nelifar Hidayat, Govinda Clayton, and James Wally for helping create the show with Doha Debates, a production of Qatar Foundation. If you want to help us out, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Next week on the show, you'll hear about the hard work of ending a decades-long conflict in the Philippines. The tragedy revolved around a police operation to catch a highly wanted target who had a $100 million price on his head put by the U.S. government. That episode next week on The Negotiators. I'm Jen Williams. And that was The Negotiators, Inside the Paris Climate Agreement from Farm Policy. My thanks to Jen, Laura and the podcast team for sharing their new series with us. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin and Simone Perez. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. 
how do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com